something we should be celebrating. Please turn to John chapter 5. Now, I was going to say, if you were forced to give a confession right now about what you believed about Jesus, what would you say? (laughs) But I don't think forced is really the best way to put that. If you had the privilege, the opportunity (laughs) to give your confession of Christ, what would you say? Maybe you would say, Jesus is God with us. Maybe you would say, Jesus is the only Savior. Maybe you would say, Jesus is the Creator and the Sustainer of the universe at all times. I mean, we could go on and on. And one of the ways that you would measure the rightness of our confession of Jesus is whether our confession says that Jesus is superior to all things in every way. That's one way you know that your confession of Jesus is accurate. Because he is superior in every way. Everything about him is supremely greater than all other things. (laughs) That is who he is. Now, this is the problem. We can be very good, I would say I can be very good and very accurate at confessing the truth about who Jesus is. But my life and your life can often indicate that we really don't believe what we claim to believe about Jesus. Isn't that true? For instance, I'm going to give you a few for instances here. We can claim that Jesus' words are the very words of God, but then fail to read them. We can fail to cherish them and treat them as if these words were not that significant at all. We can claim every word that Jesus speaks as having God's very own authority behind it, right? Because it does. It is his authority. But when confronted with his authority in some particular areas that we don't love, we can fail to submit and obey his word. As if there was no authority behind it at all. As if we were the ones in authority. We can claim that Jesus is worthy of my complete devotion But then when things get difficult, we can kind of shy away from confessing Christ, can't we? When we're afraid that we're going to look like Christ followers (laughs) to the world, we can kind of be silent and clam up. Or when things of this world look a little better to us than Jesus, we can pursue those things instead. And yet, at the same time, we can claim that he is worthy of our devotion. We can claim Jesus is all-powerful and in complete control. But then when we get a bill, right, that is a little bigger than we thought it was going to be, 
When something breaks that is really important to us, when a relationship goes sour, when we have a significant health scare, then we can fall apart in fear, as if Jesus wasn't really all that great. Right? We can claim that Jesus is merciful and loving with our mouths, but after we sin, we don't always come running to him, do we? Which makes us question, do we really believe Jesus is gracious and kind and merciful and loving? We can claim that Jesus is sovereign and in control of all events, but then we can get mad at him when things don't turn our way, when things don't work out the way we thought they should and expected them to. So this is the thing. We all struggle <laughs> with living in the reality of the truth of who Jesus is, don't we? We all struggle with living by faith and what we claim to be true about Jesus. That's a struggle every one of us has. We have a hard time with the truths of God's word reaching our hearts because when it does, it's going to change us, isn't it? It's going to change the way we live. It's going to be a difference in us. So in this passage, Jesus is going to put on display his supreme identity. He's going to magnify who he is. He's going to show us his supreme identity. Specifically, by showing us his power and his compassion. And through showing us his superior purpose through saving. So we're going to see the absolute superiority of Jesus in this passage. It's really a simple passage and a simple point here. Jesus is superior to all things. And what I want us to notice is this. When we're reading this, there's going to be a response to Jesus. Whenever Jesus confronts us with his superiority, there's going to be a response from people. Either it's going to be of faith or of unbelief. And I want us to understand that these people would have claimed to believe in God. But I want us to see what they really believe by their response in this passage. What do they really believe about Jesus? When we're confronted with the superiority and the greatness of Jesus, our response is going to reveal what we really believe. And I want you to notice the response of the paralytic and especially of the Jews to Jesus. And I want to ask, what does your response to Jesus say about what you believe about him? Do you get angry at him when he does something you don't like? Do you ignore him? Or do you worship him as the supreme Lord? So Jesus puts on display his superior identity through healing of a paralyzed man. And there are two aspects of his identity that are particularly magnified here. That's his supreme power and his compassion. And we're introduced to a vast multitude of people who are all suffering from various physical disorders. And they're all seeking to be healed. And we see this in verses 1 through 3. And we're told about the condition of those who are gathered. That those who are gathered are blind, lame, and paralyzed. Some cannot see, others cannot walk, and others are completely paralyzed. Uh, These people are in truly helpless conditions, aren't they? And we're also told about the number of people who are gathered here. 
in this condition. We're told that a multitude of invalids have gathered. That, that means a lot of people. There was a multitude, a great amount of people who have gathered here. A multitude of helpless and weak and needy people. And we're told that they're gathered at the pool of Bethsaida. Apparently there were two pool, pools there that were surrounded by five colonnades. And so they kind of had a little bit of protection from the weather over them. And so they would all gather and find shelter under these colonnades around the pool. And so the question is, why are they gathered here around this pool? What is the reason and the purpose for this? And it's actually explained later. Every once in a while, the, the water would be stirred up. And they believed by an angel. And what they thought was that the first person into the pool, when it was stirred up, would be healed. And so you can imagine the, the great hope and anticipation that maybe I will be the one who gets into the pool first. And some of your Bibles explain, some of your Bibles have verse 4, some of them don't, why they believed he would be healed. And the belief was from time to time that an angel would come down and stir up the, the waters. That's what they believed. The first one into the pool after each disturb, disturbance would be, would be cured, as I already mentioned. Now, you might wonder, why is this in some Bibles and not in other Bibles? Well, I don't believe it belongs in the Bible. Um, the earliest manuscripts don't have it in there. And I believe one of the scribes who was writing it down put it in as a note, and then it ended up in some of the manuscripts. But either way, I think it is helpful to understand that um, why they were waiting there. So it is actually helpful for us, whether or not it belongs in there. Um, the stirring of the water was likely actually caused by, by, um, by water from underneath that would come up. A spring, that's what I meant to say. A spring would disturb the water every once in a while and cause it to be disturbed. But I want you to see a pitiful picture, a scene here, of people who are absolutely desperate in, their, in this helpless condition, and their hope is in something that would not happen. Their hope is in something that, that was not legitimate, that was not true. And so here are these people in a helpless condition who have their hope in something that's just not going to pan out at the end of the day. So Jesus sings, singles out one particular man out of the crowd for healing in verses 5 through 7. And we're not told exactly what his illness is, but he was probably paralyzed. And we get that because he needed people to carry him into the pool in verse 7. And uh, if he needed someone to bring him into the pool, he was probably paralyzed. And the information we're given here tells us how serious this man's condition is. Imagine being paralyzed for 38 years. And this tells us something of the permanence of his condition. There was nothing that could cure him. Obviously, I'm sure he tried everything you possibly could. 38 years is a long time. And that indicates that you are permanently in this condition. Also, he believes his only hope is to be the first one into the pool. But no one wants to help him. Apparently, or he can't find anyone to help him. And so not only is he paralyzed in a permanent condition for 38 years, but he can't even find anyone to help him into the pool. That's helpless, isn't it? So Jesus comes up to this very man and asks him, 
what we would consider a very ridiculous question, right? Do you want to be healed? I mean, come on. (laughs) Does he want to be healed? And I don't think we should read too much into that. I think the point of that is just to prepare for the healing. I think Jesus is setting us up to heal him. And you can see how much he desires to be healed by his response to the question when the water is disturbed. But no one is able to help him into the water. But he is passionate to get in there, isn't he? He's passionate. He's waiting. Anticipation. He wants to be healed. And who wouldn't? And his response to Jesus kind of expresses to us his ignorance of Jesus, doesn't it? Here he is speaking to the, to the author of life. Here he is speaking to the one who created the worlds, and he has no idea who he is. He says, if only I can get into that water first, I'd be fine. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? In verses 8 through 9, you can see the power and compassion of Jesus on display through the healing of the helpless man. And how do you see the greatness of Jesus' power in this healing? Well, let me, let me remind you of what is clear in this passage and we have seen over and over again already. It's merely the words of Jesus that has the power to heal. He speaks and life comes out of nowhere. (laughs) Only Jesus can do that. Get up, take up your bed and walk. And with the command came the power to do so. He picks up his bed and walks. What powerful words does Jesus have? And you also see this, how instantaneously he was healed. You know, he doesn't need to go through a program of rehabilitation, does he? It's not like he's stammering all over the place, right, as he's trying to figure out how to walk and figure out how to do things. 38 years, you know. He's immediately, instantaneously healed and brought back to full recovery, full strength. Like creation, Right? Jesus speaks and it's done instantaneously in the fullness of his creative, creative power is seen in what he makes. So how do we see the greatness of Jesus' compassion in his healing? Well, notice that Jesus feels his pain. Jesus comes to him. right, And there is absolutely nothing in this man that would have compelled Jesus to go to him. He, he doesn't even believe you know, this is, sometimes we see people believing. In this instance, there is no faith here. There is no believing that's going on here. Jesus is merciful and kind in coming up to this man when there are a multitude of people. But he comes to this man. He enters his pain. He says, do you want to be healed? And he says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. When he was the most helpless, Jesus brought him healing. Now, I would like to suggest to you that we're supposed to see this healing as kind of an acted parable of the spiritual condition of all humanity. And I don't think I'm reading into this. I think this is exactly what John would want us to see. And we've seen this over and over again. And and John has different levels of meanings to what he's saying. And so I think this would make perfect sense. Like these invalids, we're all suffering spiritually We're unable to function in any way that honors the Lord. We cannot please God on our own power. We can't see him because we're blind. We can't walk according to his will because we're lame. We can't do any good thing because we are paralyzed. 
We can't please God in any way. We are all spiritually deformed because of our sin. Now, we might look perfectly well on the outside, right? We might think we are fine and feel perfectly fine, but we're not. And this is infinitely more serious than any physical infirmities anyone could ever have. And Jesus came up. He walked among his people, right? And he even gave us his word, didn't he? So in a sense, he is so near to us, but we cannot see him as he walks among us, as he gives us his word. The healing power of God is through his word. And we are blind to him. We cannot see him. We are not interested in him. We have no desire for him. Just like all these invalids who are all around him, the multitude of people have no interest in him, but are looking off to all these hopes thinking somehow I can be healed in some other way. But they are in reality helpless. And yet, in this great multitude, God in his sovereignty goes to this one man, and only this one man, and heals him. There was a multitude of invalids here, but Jesus goes to this one man and asks him if he wants to be healed. The sovereign grace of God is clearly emphasized here. And this is exactly what it means to say that when we were, to, we were unable to do anything ourselves, when we were powerless, when we were helpless to even desire God, that Christ died for us. And that's what Romans 5 or 6 says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Weak means powerless, unable, helpless. And that's exactly what we were, the case for each one of us. So here we see the superior nature of who Jesus is. He is superior to all others, mighty in power, full of compassion, able to heal. So because Jesus is superior in nature, it should also come as no surprise that his purpose is superior in nature as well. Everything he does is with a superior purpose. And Jesus expresses one of his purposes for saving right here in verse 14 by calling the healed man to stop sinning. In other words, to pursue holiness. Now, this is kind of a side note, and it might appear to not be saying a whole lot, but I think it is so important that we take a few moments and see how this confirms the superiority of Christ in every way. Did my mic just turn off? Should I get the... The what? Okay. Take the red one, is that okay? So (laughs) we're looking at the superior purpose of Jesus. And um, in verse 14, I'm going to read this. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So up to this point, the man has no idea who Jesus is. Jesus has did like kind of a heal and run, right? Like a hit and run. He, he heals the man and he books it out of there, right? Um, and it's probably because of the multitude. He's not trying to make a scene. 
They'll probably crown him king if he heals everybody there, right? And that's not his purpose. It's not his purpose. Um, he doesn't want to create unnecessary, unhelpful attention. So Jesus finds this healed man that says something to him that's really important. And I wonder, what would you expect for Jesus to say at this point? Certainly not what he says here. If you, if you tell me, oh, I, I expected him to say this, then I think you're lying. <laughs> what he says is, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So, so what is Jesus saying here? What is Jesus telling him? What does this mean? He is clearly connecting the healing of the man with an urgent need for him to stop practicing sin. In other words, he's calling him to, to moral um, reformation. So there is a connection between Jesus' saving work and our battle against sin. Jesus is saying there's a connection between my saving work and the direction of your life. When Jesus works to save, the evidence is we start pursuing a new direction. Now, we are not perfect, right? Jesus isn't calling per for perfection here. He's not saying, now you've got to live a perfect life. He's saying, you've got to start pursuing the right direction. He is calling him to go in a new way than he was going in. Consistent with the saving work of Jesus. If there is no change in direction, Jesus warns that something worse will happen to him. If he doesn't stop sinning in the sense of change the direction of his life, go in a new direction, start pursuing God, repentance and faith, right? A life of repentance, that's what that looks like. And something worse is going to happen to him. So we wonder, what is this worst thing? And obviously we're not given a lot of information here, Right? But what could possibly be worse than being paralyzed? Well, I think it's hell. I think it's the judgment of God, eternal judgment of God, the justice poured out on us for eternity. This should cause us to question, what does our sinning have to do with eternal life? We're about to come to verses 28 through 29. And I think it's helpful if I read those verses to help us understand, I think, what Jesus is saying here. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Right? So we're talking about the resurrection. And come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is not saying here that our good works are going to save us. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Rather, our works will bear witness to the reality of our salvation. It will result in a changed life. I think this is exactly what Jesus is saying to this man. I think Jesus is warning him that you must bear witness to the reality of the saving work in your life. It's nice that you're healed. That's good. That's good. But I didn't come primarily to heal physically. I came to change lives. I came to bring true healing. And I think he's telling him to prove it by a changed direction in your life, by pursuing holiness, which is evidence of resurrection life, of true life that Jesus gives us. Prove that you're more than physically healed by pursuing holiness rather than sin. Because a changed life is evidence of genuine salvation. This means one of the good purposes for why Jesus came 
to us and came to die on the cross is to make us holy. And sometimes we don't understand that that is good for us, that that is absolutely essential. Jesus came to justify us, meaning declare us righteous in the sight of his Father, right? So that we can be in his presence and we can be forgiven of our sins, right? That's what justification means, to be made right with him. But he also came to sanctify us, to make us into a right living, and to reflect the image of Jesus Christ. When Jesus saves, he is working powerfully for our good to make us holy. Holiness is true wholeness, you might say. This means that although Jesus' words might not sound very compassionate to us, right? When we first hear that, does that sound compassionate? It doesn't to my ears at first. They're in reality the most passionate words, compassionate words you could possibly say by leading him to holiness. This leads us to one question. How is this healed man supposed to do this? Right? Jesus doesn't say anything. Is Jesus telling this man to pick himself up by his bootstraps and stop sinning? <laughs> Jesus doesn't have to tell the man how to do this. Can I tell you, Jesus has already told him very clearly how he is to live a holy life. He is to live a holy life the same way he was healed. Through Jesus' words, through his power. He can no more live a holy life than he could have started walking when he was paralyzed. Clearly the only way to go in a new direction is through a miracle of Jesus. Through him. Just as the healing was all his power, so does holiness come only by his power. This mean, means his command also comes with power to do what he commands. Did you know that? He is saying, look to me for the power to live a holy life. Just as I healed you, so can I make you holy. Now live in the reality of that. Turn to me and be saved. This means something for us as a church. What good are we going to do for anybody if we simply focus on their physical bodies, but don't lead them and call them to holiness through the gospel. It would be cruel to just help people physically and, lead, and, and leave them to the judgment for eternity. That would be the most cruel thing we could do. We wouldn't do them any good if we didn't lead them to holiness. And we need to understand that's true of each one of our lives. If we really care about people as Jesus did, we will not primarily be concerned about their physical health, although we will be concerned about their physical health, but rather we will encourage them through the gospel to live holy lives. And this is one of the purposes for which Christ died, to powerfully change us. And if we care for people, we will share the compassion that Jesus had. We will care for their holiness. There are many churches who are more focused on physical needs than spiritual needs, which is so sad because it tells us that they have deviated from the gospel. They have abandoned the gospel and they have left the only hope for salvation. And they'll help people for a few years before they face the judgment of God for eternity. And what good have they done? Now I want to look at people's response to Jesus as he continues to reveal his supreme identity. We've seen his supreme identity 
And I want us to see how the response indicates their faith or lack of it. Do they believe or not? To some, Jesus is avoided because he makes them look bad. And we see this with a paralytic. Really interesting response that we'll see in these next few verses. To others, Jesus makes them angry because he encroaches on their kingdom and their position, as we will see with the Jewish leaders. And all of this is evidence of sinful unbelief. In verses 10 through 16. So the story doesn't end with the paralyzed man. We think we're done, right? We think the story's over. But then there's this additional piece of information given at the end of verse 9. We're told that Jesus healed the man on the Sabbath. And this is really going to be the catalyst that's going to bring the opposition against Jesus that will lead us all the way to the cross. This is the beginning, you might say, of the anger towards Jesus. And so we wonder, did Jesus really have to stir the pot? Did he really have to do it on a Sabbath? He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew how they would respond. And the answer is absolutely yes. I think Jesus is doing this intentionally. It is often through disturbances like this when Jesus magnifies his authority and shows his power that often the controversy that comes as a result is often a means to magnify who he is and to speak the truth into the situation. That's exactly what happens in verses 17 through 47. Jesus uses this as a platform to tell them who he is. And the Jewish leadership are very upset at the man who who was healed because he carried his mat in verse 10. And this doesn't seem like a really big deal to us, does it? And so we ask ourselves, why is he so concerned about the guy carrying his mat? And uh, Jesus, or, or God, did give commands for the Sabbath day, didn't he? God gave commands for his people to, to celebrate the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath in the Old Testament. But the question is, what constitutes work? Because they are claiming that this man was breaking the Sabbath by doing work. By carrying his mat. How do you define it? And so we need to understand that in an attempt to make sure the Sabbath laws were not broken by the religious leaders, they tried to define work by dividing it into 39 different categories. I don't think you possibly could try to define work in more categories than 39. I'll try to read to you a couple examples of what this might have looked like. (laughs) This This is just kind of what it might have looked like to have these laws. One could, do repair, one could not do repair work, so it was forbidden to wear your artificial teeth. Lest they should fall out you, and you break the Sabbath by affixing them back into your mouth. Someone said that. That's, that's kind of the idea of these laws. <laughs> one could not transact business, so it was forbidden to borrow anything from your neighbor. Uh, and, and we could go on and on. There are many more ways we could describe what it was like. But what is the problem with these rules? Well, the problem is God did not make those specific regulations. Those weren't God's rules. Those were man's rules. Right? This means the man who was healed was not violating God's law by carrying his mat, but their own made-up rules. He broke their regulations. Right? So after the leaders confront the healed man for breaking their Sabbath rules, he responds by passing the blame to the one who healed him, saying, he told me to pick up my bed and walk. He told me to do it. I was just following his orders. He is the culprit. Verse 11, but he answered him, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. So he's trying to shift the blame, isn't he? 
He's trying to get out, out of the problem he's in. Get off the hook. So in light of the man's testimony, the authorities turned their concern to the real culprit, who was Jesus. The man who was commanding people to do work on the Sabbath is the real problem, right? And we see that in verses 12 through 13. They ask him, who is this? And the man didn't know because he had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Notice the Jewish leaders, just notice something here very clear, that the Jewish leaders are blind from seeing the goodness of Jesus' action. And isn't that true of such legalism? The Jewish leaders are only able to see that their rules were broken, but they're unable to see the miraculous healing of the paralyzed man. They're unable to have compassion. They're unable to see the power of God at work. They only see their rules that have been broken that they have set up. And this is always the case with legalism and false religion. It does not value people nor have interest in the power of God. It is self-propelled, man's power, and it is driven by self-interest. Rather than compassion for others. If your religion does not lead you to love people, it is false. Jesus himself said the law is summarized in these words. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love others as yourself. If your religion does not depend completely on God's power, it's false. Legalism tries to circumvent, right, the power of God and tries to circumvent loving people to get at righteousness by our own power that magnifies ourselves and serves to fill ourselves up with our own selfish pride rather than loving people and rather depending on the power of God. They had no value for his people or for his power. And this is why, instead of praising Jesus for what he did, they wanted to kill him. It is only after Jesus finds him in verses 14 through 15 that he is finally able to report to Jesus to the authorities. And so Jesus goes to him, and you wonder, why is he doing this? Why, do, why does Jesus find this man out? There must have been, like, I, I heard thousands of people there at that time. And so he finds the man out supernaturally and then, and then, and then speaks to him. And I think Jesus is doing this on purpose because he's got a plan. He's got a plan. So this leads us to the last verse we'll look at today. We are told that this is why the Jews were determined to kill him because he was doing such things on the Sabbath. So you wonder, how could this make people so mad? I don't get it. Well, I think it's much more closer to home than we would like to realize. Such people get mad at Jesus when he does not operate by their rules. They get mad when the lawmaker does not act according to their made-up rules. They can put up with Jesus for a time, as long as he doesn't conflict with their authority and their kingdom that they have created. But when he starts exerting his authority, then they get mad in areas that are important to them. In this case, Jesus was challenging their authority and their kingdom. And we'll look at that next week more fully. Jesus was not playing according to their rules, but by his own true kingdom rules. Jesus was the true king. He had rightful authority to do what he wanted, because what he did was right. He was the true king, and here was this made-up kingdom by people who had their own rules and their own ways of doing things. And Jesus was conflicting with their authority. 
Such people get mad when they are not honored for their external conformity to man-made regulations because that's why they make up their regulations, for their honor and for their praise. But when God is honored as the one who saves, then they get mad. Then they get mad. The rules they were intended to ensure was purposefully made so that they could keep the law by their own power and that they could say that they did it and that they would be magnified for their work and that they could be pleased with themselves, right? And that people would look at them as being good and fulfilling the law. But God's will, his rules, his commands are impossible for us to keep. We need his grace and we need his mercy. We need his power. But they have no value for this because it honored God and not them. So they got mad. Such people get mad because Jesus' words and works reveal that their kingdom was a phony kingdom and his kingdom is the true kingdom. And that makes people mad, doesn't it? He was displaying his, his superior authority, his power, his compassion, and his purpose in such a way that they could not deny it. There's no denying his wisdom and his power. And they hated him for that because it showed that their kingdom was a phony kingdom. We can do this very thing when we create our own religious rules and bind them on others that are not in scripture. When we create our own kingdom. But if we try to measure ourselves with God's standard in the Bible, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, for instance, we find ourselves unable to meet God's demands. We find ourselves crushed under it. Our heart does not beat for what God loves. We need new hearts and new desires. We need the mercy of God, his power at work in us, to create within us a new heart that loves him and desires him. And that only comes by his mercy and by his power. That only comes by his grace. So we asked, what does my response to Jesus say about what I believe? Every one of us would find that we have areas of weakness, right? Every one of us would find that we struggle in certain areas. There are commands that we struggle with that Jesus says, right? There are times when we fear when trouble takes hold of us. There are times when we fail to live by faith. But how do we live as if we truly believed in the reality of who Jesus is? How do we live as if we truly believed what we confessed? And the secret to living like a Christian is no secret at all. It's simply learning to trust in the cook. You trust the cook by feeding your faith daily through ingesting the word of God. He has prepared something for you. He has prepared a perfectly good meal for you. His word is the only means to see him as the supreme treasure and to live by faith, because that's what we need. And so you trust the cook by reading the word with confidence that this is what I need, whether you feel like it's what you need or not. You don't have to research for something significant in the Bible to find and read. You need it all. God knows exactly what you need. He prepared it, and you need to eat his food. Now, sometimes the Bible says things over and over again, doesn't it? And we're wondering, what is this all about? I get it already. Well, you need to hear it over and over again. You need to hear it again. Trust God that he knows how to feed you. Trust the cook when you read the Bible. And then pray for eyes to see his glory. In other words, pray that God would magnify his supreme worth before your eyes as you're reading the Bible. Say, God, help me to see you 
And it can only happen if you open my eyes. And if you give me sight to see your supreme worth. So that when I see your supreme worth in the scriptures, I don't get mad. I don't ignore you. Because of what it means. But I worship you. And say that you are great and worthy to be praised. Faith sees Jesus accurately and responds accurately to him. Then do the same thing the next day. And the next day. And the next day. Do you think God would not respond favorably to those who pursue him this way by faith? I think he will. And I think he does. Let's pray. Dear Father, we come before you as people who are helpless. There are so many things in this world that are offering us hope all around us, that are saying that they can heal us, that they can save us. But Lord, none of these things can save us. None of these things can deliver us from your wrath. God, we are truly a pitiful people. And we need a mighty and powerful God who is full of compassion to heal us. And Lord, as we live in this world of darkness, in a world that does not see your supreme worth, Lord, we need your help daily. We need your help moment by moment to see that you are supremely worthy of our trust. To see that you are superior to all others. That you are that treasure that is worth more, exceedingly worth more, infinitely worthy and infinitely valuable. God, open our eyes. Help us to see how great you are. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who is at this moment standing under your wrath, Lord, I pray that you would show them their pitiful condition and may you deliver them into your kingdom, even right now, even at this moment. Lord, may they cry out to you in faith and may you deliver them. God, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you have spoken to us and you have given us exactly what we need to live by faith. In Jesus' name. We cannot see his glory anywhere else greater than looking at this, at the cross. There is no other place to go if we want to behold the supreme worth of Christ than the cross. And so I just want to spend a couple moments looking at Christ and, and worshiping him and delighting in him and praising him and thinking of all that he is in his infinite worth and value. It is here that we see the greatness of his mercy and his grace and his love like we can never see it anywhere else. We were guilty. We were deserving of his wrath. We were hopeless to save ourselves and that's when Jesus came and died for us. At that very moment, he came to deliver us from the wrath of God and bring us into his favor. 
And that's why he hears us when we pray. And I think of the words that he says, the the greatest words perhaps in all the Bible. They're all great. It is finished. He finished the work right there. How precious are those words to us. It is here we see God's justice like we can see it nowhere else. Unless God's justice is satisfied, we cannot be accepted by God. We can't go into his presence when our, when our justice is demanded of us for our sin. Only Christ, who is God with us, can satisfy the just demands of God. And his sacrifice fully satisfies God's justice. We are justified through the cross. Magnificent justice displayed through the cross. And finally, it's here that we see his power over every enemy like we can see it nowhere else. Sometimes we don't understand the enemy that stood against us, so much more powerful than we were. There was no hope of deliverance. And he demonstrates his superiority over every enemy that stood against his people through the cross. It is on the cross that he crosses every enemy that stands against us. Praise God for the display of his power. And if you can say it this way, if you can even say it this way, it is at his weakest moment that he thoroughly defeats his enemy through, de- through death on a cross. What an amazing display of power. <laughs> There's no one who compares with him. So in all of this that we are doing, now we should be reminded that a day is coming when we will see the fullness of the manifestation of the glory of Jesus Christ right before our eyes. What an awesome reality that is coming. We will party like we've never partied before. And so this is just a picture of of what awaits us, of, of of the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is only for believers. It is only for those who confess Jesus to be their Lord and their Savior. And we are very serious about that. I've heard it said that it's the height of hypocrisy to partake of something you don't believe in. So please do not partake of this if you're not a believer. But if you are a believer, I welcome you to join us. I welcome you to join us. We're going to have a moment of silence as we examine our hearts and fix our eyes on Jesus before Chris prays for the bread. Thank you. 